This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about rock art across Utah and the Southwest and what's being done to preserve and protect it. 90% of rock art in Utah has not even been documented. And of that 10% that is documented, most of them are cell phone photos. That's Jonathan Bailey, photographer and conservationist who specializes in rock art. Since 2013, he has partnered with the Utah Rock Art Research Association to record and protect Emory County's fragile archaeological resources. He hopes to use his photographs as tools for conservation and for preservation of cultural landscapes. I've done conservation work in some format since I was probably about six years old. So that's about 20 years for me. And I've been working primarily on rock art, but I have also worked in conserving botany and animals and basically any field that falls into a natural field. When I think of the term rock art, I guess I think of a broad definition that includes paintings, etchings, and the like. But I wanted to hear from you what your definition of the term rock art is? I would consider rock art to be both paintings, pictographs, uh, and uh, carving, petroglyphs. I would also emphasize that why particularly I've chosen to use the term rock art, there's some differences from person to person and group to group, but I choose rock art because it is not a form of written language. It does not Uh, correlate to exact words and and, or sounds as in the case of like Egyptian hieroglyphs and that's what differs rock art from hieroglyphs is that one represents a spoken language the other does not so art encompasses the very broad definition of what could be painted be it a story or some form of communication or even like landmarks or signs, anything. I mean, art is very diverse in that way. So that's why I use that term. Right. It sounds like you've walked all over Southern Utah and Arizona looking at rock art. Do you always have a destination in mind or often do you just head out not knowing what you're going to find? Usually I would walk not knowing because I am, you know, particularly in conservation, I am looking for sites that may not be documented or might not be otherwise known or reported by other people. So I rely heavily on topography and just looking at features that seem prominent in the landscape. Also just kind of looking for areas conducive to rock art in general. Are there areas out there on your list to to explore? There are a lot of areas (laughs) that I'd love to, to go in. You know, there's some areas that require still days and days of backpacking in Utah and other places. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And that's what's kind of good about how I choose to engage with rock art and how I choose to find it and help conserve it is that I just, you know, I can go anywhere and, and hope. (laughs) Right, right, right. In your experience, rock art as a, well, more or less a general communication tool, rock art also expressing so many facets of you know prehistoric life are all aspects of life being documented through rock art or 
does it seem like there's certain certain areas that are more heavily used in terms of uh, what you found, what you've seen? Obviously, this is something that would change group to group, tribe to tribe, person to person. But I would say largely that's what you miss the most of is just daily life in some ways. Simply and particularly in the case of animals that we know were hunted and and fished and other things but are very rarely represented in rock art you know i can not think of uh many fish carved in utah at all and then you like uh rabbits for example uh rabbit nets were very common but yet there are almost no depictions of rabbits Mm -hmm. so i I guess that is uh, a place that you don't really see a window into uh with rock art but you do see many other aspects of life you you don't see a window into the the hunted game not directly no you would see animals that may have been hunted certainly but not the diversity in which their gastronomy and other things are cooking Uh, you just don't see um, the diversity of what was being hunted and consumed in rock art a lot of hunter-gatherer groups for example can be very ethereal and far more spiritual, uh, maybe not in a religious context, but just in the the secularity or lack thereof um, in a particular image. And hunter-gatherer groups could be very um, spiritual in their depictions, whereas um, agricultural groups may, uh, you may see day-to-day life more, Um, obviously that they're still considered sacred, but the depictions may be things tilted more towards the secular and uh, agriculture groups. Why or how is rock art being threatened today? Rock art is primarily threatened through vandalism um, and looting and other things that can happen in the vicinity of rock art. And what is commonly forgotten is how the interplay of other things impacts vandalism. For example, one of the things I encounter frequently is energy development. And people, when they hear this, usually think that the battle is energy development versus tourism. Because they they will say things like, I would rather see a pump jack than 400 people in front of the site. The, The problem is that when you have an undertaking like oil and gas, they are going to put infrastructure there to remove those minerals. And that infrastructure is not only accessible to to oil and gas companies, it's accessible to everybody, usually. And those roads need to be improved such that people can access those in, you know, non-high clearance vehicles. So particularly with undertakings that require road infrastructure, you may see a site that previously required two or three days of backpacking to get to that is now accessible within a few miles of it of an energy road. So everything is kind of encompassed in the realm of vandalism and visitation. Obviously, you do have viewshed issues and other issues in terms of the environment and the context of the site with physical architecture, architecture and other oil and gas infrastructure and such. But really, the emphasis is vandalism. Do you find that making a site public either by photographing or some other way attracts more people in general 
or is it more the access and you know the 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 i know right here near moab not long ago the birthing panel was vandalized and it is literally you know 20 feet off the road so i i find that i guess the question is it's really the a lot of it's the access to a site as well as the knowledge of it being there right definitely both knowledge and access and also just how that site is being engaged with particularly if it is a site that is becoming common in the trip report communities and and Mm -hmm. groups that really encourage that kind of information to be shared not necessarily the photograph in general being shared although that can happen but primarily I would say it is access. You rarely see rock art being vandalized that requires significant effort to get to. It does happen, but far more rarely. Yeah, and that makes sense. And you've worked uh, with writers and others, you know, putting together books with your photographs. And I know these are conservation efforts, but what has been the, the emphasis behind these works and what do you hope to, to gain from them? In many ways, I don't personally hope to gain from them. I think it's just kind of a karmic debt (laughs) (laughs) and feeling that, you know, you owe this place something because I always believe that when you're visiting a place, that visitation level has to match your level of reciprocity. And uh, for, for a lot of visitors who maybe visiting a region for the first time, a really good way to do this is to learn about the tribes, learn about etiquette, visit sites developed for people that are not experienced to visit, public infrastructure, that kind of thing, trails, signs, and that can be reciprocity for a lot of people. But if you are living out here and you are visiting sites regularly, and uh, particularly if you're not indigenous and can't Uh, engage with it in that uh, same very uh, respectful way that, you know, they can, you have to find other means of helping these places persist. So, yeah, I mean, I would just encourage everybody to try to look at how invasive you're being just as a visitor. And every person is invasive. There is no such thing as a non-invasive visitor to anything. And make sure your reciprocity is matching how uh, much you are invading into that space. What conservation efforts are you trying to undertake within your work? I think it depends. I mean, baseline, it is important to have a photographic record of mm-hmm. these places because even when they are documented, a lot of times they're being documented with cell phones, mm-hmm. uh, point and shoot cameras. And so there is not this archive of just incredibly high resolution images of you know, these thousands and thousands and thousands of images that are out there. 90% of rock art in Utah has not even been documented. And of that 10% that is documented, most of them are cell phone photos. So we have very, very little record of what's actually out there. And so when it is destroyed, when it is vandalism, there is really nothing to, to fall upon. So that is a a big motivation. But of course, there is also this other motivation of having these photographs be 
tools for conservation and for landscape scale preserving of cultural landscapes. So mm -hmm. I would say it's a, a double purpose. Do you ever include maps with your with your photographs? No, never maps, but there are certainly park boundaries and other things that might be shown if it's relevant to a proposal. Bears ears being one of them, obviously you have the, the bears ears map that everyone has. So it's just a matter of only disposing as much as physically necessary. Right, to, to, to make the point to, to conserve an area. Yeah. Do you usually just, you know, acknowledge the area it came from or do you not even uh, disclose that? If it's necessary. <laughs> it's usually not. Yeah. So that is, you'll see some photos that say bears ears, but that's because it's relevant to bears ears. But aside from that, no. And it's also a very large area. So <laughs> right. it's not really narrowing it down a whole lot. <laughs> What, I mean, what do you feel can be done to change the mindset of people who, who are vandalizing these panels? What can be done to make them want to honor and preserve this heritage rather than deface it? We do have issues with radicalization just generally in, in this country. And that has had a huge effect on Robert, actually. Yeah. Within the last four or five years, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in politically motivated cases of vandalism, the birthing scene being one of them. Generally, preventing radicalization can have an impact, but ultimately, even beyond education, even beyond doing whatever we can for our society, we're never going to be able to prevent vandalism totally because these took sometimes thousands of years, hundred and uh, hundreds of years in order to arrive to us as they do today. But they can be destroyed completely in an instant by anybody at any point in time. So total preservation is never possible, but we can do as much as we can to mitigate those impacts. What have you done in terms of interpreting or cataloging the sites you have found? In terms of interpretation, that is definitely up to the tribes and, and what they want to interpret and what they want to present. And anything I have is more than available to, to anybody or to any uh, tribal entity mm -hmm. that wants to interpret them for their own purposes um, and not disclose that. But in terms of recording, yes, uh, uh, the sites are being mapped and photographed and provided to the appropriate land management agencies. Researchers really need to stop looking at gender when it comes to rock art and other archeological uh, archaeological fields, archeological sites, whatever, mm -hmm. because gender is not something that can be determined from rock art. It's not something that can be determined from human remains. You're obviously looking at uh, perhaps a phallic figure, uh, a figure with a vulva carved in the rock, but you can't determine uh, gender right. uh, unless you, you know, grab the TARDIS and go back in time and ask them. Uh, but this is not just an issue about res respecting trans people, although 
that is obviously a huge factor. It's also about accuracy because if you perceive something incorrectly, you open the window to massive interpretation issues. So I would encourage all researchers to just stop talking about gender and start focusing on being a little bit more specific. Right. That's very well put. Thank you. What's the most unique rock art that you have come across? It's incredibly diverse. (laughs) So I don't think there's any that's particularly unusually unique because they're all unique. Uh, Maybe most surprising or just different that you've come, you know, something that just stood out in your mind. There are some sites that are basically beneath the earth and you might see like slivers of them through the the earth as you're walking and then you eventually find an opening and you go in and there's you know a cavity filled with paintings or or something like that so those are always really uh intriguing placements wow so they're they're below ground or just kind of in a cave of rock i'm not sure i understand the geology of how a lot of these similar placements have formed but basically it's like slick rock Uh and then you'll see almost potholes but those potholes just go down into the earth like 10 feet and then uh, beneath them is a cavity very cool and i know you're working on a couple other books that are coming out probably at the end of next year can you give us any sort of a preview as to what what they're going to be all about so the, the Greater San Rafael Swell, which is co-authored by Stephen Strom, is a reflection on the deep history of the San Rafael Swell in the center of Utah, and also a discussion on how to manage compromise in traditionally conservative communities that may not want to preserve landscapes in the same way that conservation communities and other groups may uh, want to conserve them. And it's uh, a reflection of how these rural communities do value these lands and how they do want to conserve them and how to navigate those differences. The other book, When I Was Red Clay, which is a Tory House Press book coming around August, It's a memoir of sorts, uh, kind of an LGBTQ wilderness uh, sort of book that uh, is very different from my other works, but uh, hopefully people enjoy it. Well, what first got you interested in seeking out and photographing rock art? I know that my growing up in a rural Utah community uh, where I could walk from my doorstep to rock art probably had a huge impact on that but really it's always been what I loved and just it provides that window into something that really goes beyond our knowing that is hard to pull yourself away from and 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 why would you want to (laughs) it's you know it's really kind of inexplicable but there's nothing else like it Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for talking with Science Moab and uh, telling us about your photographs and the very vast world of rock art.
Thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.